Thank you for tuning into this webinar, What You Need to Know About the 2021 KMAG. This webinar is hosted by AGH University and presented by AGH. AGH was one of the first teams in its region to develop a practice specializing in public sector entities. It remains a leading CPA and advisory firm serving state and local governments as well as other public sector organizations. Its professionals deal exclusively with the issues affecting the public sector, the kinds of issues you face each day. Today's speakers are Alicia Simon and Michelle Locke. Alicia joined AGH in 2010 and specializes in public sector auditing. She focuses on governmental accounting and auditing under governmental auditing standards and uniform guidance. And her government clients include states, cities, counties, and school districts with up to $500 million in revenue and a billion in assets. Michelle specializes in public sector accounting and auditing as well. She has prior experience as a controller and treasurer finance manager for a city municipality. Michelle's a certified government financial manager, and her clients include cities, counties, and school districts with up to $500 million in revenue and over a billion dollars in assets. The Kansas Municipal Audit and Accounting Guide, the KMAG, provides guidance for all municipalities in Kansas. Today's webinar will discuss the 2021 KMAG and provide action steps to help you prepare for your audit prior to the auditors arriving. All right, thanks Mike and thanks everyone for joining us on the webinar today. Um, we've got several learning objectives that we're going to address today. The first one is going to be to understand the audit and accounting requirements under the KMAG and that's going to include any updates in the 2021 KMAG. We also want to help you understand the importance of internal control processes to help protect your organization and mitigate fraud risk. Um, we'll also help you think through some of the best ways to leverage your available resources. And then finally, we'll also discuss what you can do now to help prepare for your upcoming audit. So we're going to divide our presentation today into two main sections. In the first section, it's really going to be just a primer of the KMAG. We want to provide an overview of what the KMAG is and how it is going to impact your organization. And then in the next section, we'll talk about what you need to do to prepare for your audit before your auditors actually arrive on site. Especially in today's environment with budget cuts and constrained resources, it's really important to think about how you can best leverage your limited resources to still accomplish your organization's objectives. So we want to help you to identify the most important aspects to consider for your audit and then also identify some opportunities to outsource some activities if you don't have sufficient internal resources. So we're going to go ahead and start today's presentation with a polling question. So I'm going to go ahead and turn it back over to Mike. Perfect. So to go ahead and get started, the Kansas Municipal Audit and Accounting Guide or the KMAG as we're going to continue to refer to it throughout this presentation is a document that's mandated by state statute and made available by the Kansas Society of CPAs. Um, I want to point out that the KMAG is reviewed and updated on an annual basis, and this is done by the Board of Editors. This is made up of members of the KSCPA, as well as members of the State of Kansas Division of Accounts and Reports. Um, the primary focus of the guide is really the cash basis and budget laws of Kansas and Kansas-related finance compliance issues. Um, and although the main purpose of this guide is really to provide for the option of a simplified regulatory basis of accounting for municipalities, um, it still contains relevant information for all Kansas municipalities, even if they don't elect this regulatory basis of accounting. So in addition to defining this regulatory basis of accounting, the guide also defines audit requirements and then summarizes other applicable regulatory compliance requirements as well. 
So auditors of Kansas municipalities are required to perform their audits in accordance with this guide. So this is a resource that they're going to be using throughout the audit process. But we wanna point out that it's not just used for auditors, but it's also a great reference for public finance professionals as well as you're preparing for your audit. So we wanna talk about what are the cash basis and budget laws? Cash basis law really just means that governments aren't allowed to write a check or a warrant if the cash isn't actually on hand in the treasury or the bank. Um, the Kansas budget laws, on the other hand, require municipalities to do a couple different things. The first of which is to adopt a balanced budget, which just means that your budgeted expenditures can't exceed your available resources. The second piece of this is to monitor those expenditures so as not to exceed that legally adopted, adopted budget amounts in each of those budgeted funds. And Alicia, folks should also keep in mind when you're thinking about budgetary compliance, you have to really think about what is an expenditure. It's not just what has been spent, but also includes commitments to make a purchase. That's right, Michelle. So let's go ahead and bring this idea to life and let's talk through the life cycle of an expenditure. The life cycle of an expenditure is essentially going to be the same for all municipalities, whether you report under the regulatory basis or under the gap basis. The first step that you're gonna go through is generally an encumbrance. Although with that being said, there are some purchases that might actually skip this step. For example, if it's a purchase that's made on a purchasing card or regularly occurring expense like utilities, health insurance premiums, pension contributions, those may not always go through the encumbrance process. So to take another step back, an encumbrance simply represents a commitment to make a purchase. So when you initially enter into a contract or issue a purchase order, this is results in an expenditure on a budgetary basis. The next step is when you actually receive the goods or service and the vendor submits an invoice. This encumbrance becomes a full-fledged gap basis expenditure and is recorded as an accounts payable at that time. Finally, once you pay the invoice, you're going to write your check or warrant and record a reduction to cash in your general ledger. So overall, pretty simple process. Um, I do want to point out, though, that sometimes there are encumbrances that are created for purchases, but then the final amount that's actually due to the vendor ends up being less than the contract amount. So in this particular situation, you want to record a canceled or lapped encumbrance. And when you record a canceled encumbrance in the same year that the encumbrance was made, budgetary expenditures are reduced for the amount of that difference. And Alicia, from a practical perspective, I just want to remind folks that it's important to review your encumbrance listing periodically throughout the year. Like you said, when a canceled encumbrance, uh, when you cancel an encumbrance in the same year it was made, it frees up the budget authority to be used for other purposes. But if an encumbrance is canceled in a subsequent year, then the budget, budget authority associated with it can't be used for any other purpose, which basically means it's lost. Good point, Michelle. Okay, so we've mentioned the regulatory basis of accounting a few different times, so I just want to go into a little bit more detail about what that actually entails. So Kansas municipalities have the option of presenting gap basis financial statements, or like we mentioned, to present under the regulatory basis described in the KMAG. I do want to say that if you are using the election to present on the regulatory basis, a resolution waiving that gap requirement must be passed on an annual basis by the municipality's governing body. So that will be a key. 
Um, and as we've talked about, the focus of the regulatory basis is to present cash receipts and disbursements uh, to show compliance with that cash basis and budget law that we talked about. So we, with this, financial statements are really going to look significantly different from GAAP basis financial statements. Unlike GAAP financials, under the regulatory basis, the only elements of financial statements that are recognized are going, going to be cash, cash equivalents, marketable investments, accounts payable, and encumbrances. And the net of all of these amounts uh, represents unencumbered cash investments. So all recognized assets and liabilities are measured at cost, and unless they've been permanently impaired and have no future cash value or represent no future obligation against cash. Another thing that we want to point out is that the regulatory basis does not recognize um, several other aspects, including capital assets, long-term debt, accrued receivables and payables, or any other assets, liabilities, deferred inflows or outflows, other than those ones that we specifically mentioned. And that's for financial statement purposes. Um, there will still be some disclosure requirements in the footnotes, which we are going to talk about in a little bit more detail here shortly. Um, regulatory basis uh, receipts and regulatory expenditures result in changes in unencumbered cash and investments. And I want to point out here that the term Alicia used, regulatory basis receipts, is something different from revenue. And the KMAG actually specifies that the term revenue should not be associated with any KMAG regulatory financial statements or schedules. So let's go ahead and take a look at an example of a regulatory basis financial statement. This is the sample financial statement that's included in Appendix C of the KMAG. And KMAG financial statements include a single basic financial statement which summarizes all of the funds of the reporting entity and then goes through to present information about both current year resource flows and ending balances. So looking at the statement, on the far left side, we start with the beginning balance of, the, of unencumbered cash, which will be the same as your ending balance from the prior year statement. Then we'll go back through, add prior year canceled encumbrances. You're going to add in your current receipts, deduct out current year expenditures, and that's going to get us the ending balance of unencumbered cash. At this point, we'll add back in encumbrances in AP, and that gets us to the cash balance, which then gets reconciled to the various different types of cash investments down at the bottom of the statement. So really, after you're walking through the format of this statement, you can see that it really does do a good job of demonstrating compliance with the cash basis law. So the remainder of the regulatory basis financial statements are made up of regulatory required supplemental information, which includes schedules to demonstrate the budgetary compliance. Schedule one is shown here, and it's in a format similar to the statement we just reviewed in that it includes all budgeted funds and then presents budgeted and actual expenditures in a single line item for each of those funds to show whether each individual fund is within the legally adopted budget. There are some other supporting schedules which we aren't showing here, and those go into a bit more detail for each individual fund. It includes individual line items for revenue and expenditure by type and sometimes function. So we're not gonna go into a lot more detail during the presentation about the nuances of regulatory basis financial statements beyond what we've already discussed. 
but we did want to provide references to the resources available to you in the KMAG. Appendix B includes all of the recognized financial statement elements under KMAG and an ex explanation of how the regulatory basis differs from the GAAP basis. Appendix C includes further explanation of the required statement and schedules, and provides sample financial statements in more detail than we just discussed. Appendix D is also a good resource. It includes some sample footnote disclosures. <clears throat> and one thing I do specifically want to point out here is that the KMAG requires financial statements to include certain disclosures, even for municipalities reporting under a GAAP basis. And while most of the required disclosures are also required under GAAP, there are a handful that are distinct under the KMAG. So the sample disclosures that are included in Appendix D are a great reference for drafting and updating your footnotes, which we'll go in and talk more about disclosures in the next section of this presentation when we start to talk about how to prepare for your audit. The last resource I wanna point out here is Appendix F, which this is a summary of the procedures for passing that gap waiver, which we previously mentioned. Um, and that, again, is that requirement for any municipality in Kansas that's not issuing GAAP basis financial statements. This discloses what you need to do to issue that GAAP waiver. So far in the presentation, we've been discussing the accounting requirements, but the KMAG also defines audit requirements. So let's take a quick look at those. Audit requirements are largely based on the size of the municipality. So for any municipality with gross receipts, GEO bonds or revenue bonds in excess of $500,000, an all funds audit is required, which is basically just an audit of the full municipality. For smaller entities, either an agreed upon procedure, um, which is referred to as an AUP or a utility fund audit might be sufficient. An AUP is required for entities with gross receipts ranging anywhere from $275,000 to $500,000 and an AUP is less in scope than a full audit, and it does consist of procedures that are specifically described in Appendix K of the KMAG. A utility fund audit is, used, is required for an entity with any outstanding revenue bonds. So a utility fund audit would be limited in scope to the utility fund or funds only, and not the entire municipality. So we wanted to point out here that there are some cases where an entity might find themselves in a situation where they meet the requirements for needing an AUP and also a utility funds audit. And in that sort of a situation, an all funds audit can be completed just to meet both of those requirements. One final caveat that I wanted to throw out here to the size requirement is that unified school districts are subject to an all funds audit regardless of any of these thresholds. And Alicia, I want to point out that for most of the rest of this presentation, we're going to be talking about how to prepare for your audit. But when we talk about an audit, we're really talking about any of these engagements where you're going to have someone come in and re review your records. Thanks, Michelle. So now we've talked about the accounting um, and audit requirements, but one more area that the KMAG addresses is regulatory compliance requirements. The KMAG requires auditors to test compliance with Kansas statutes, statutes and provides checklists that can be used to help identify and summarize these requirements. These checklists are not only a great resource for auditors, but also for public finance professionals. The first checklist is A1, 
and it's applicable for all municipalities. Uh, the remaining checklists are targeted to specific types of municipalities. So what I want to do is encourage each one of you to review a copy of the checklists that are relevant to your organization on at least an annual basis. And this will help you be prepared and proactive before your auditors start asking questions. So here's an example of what these checklists look like. You can see that there's a general description of the requirement, which includes references to state statutes that you can refer to to get a better understanding of what this requirement is really discussing. So in this particular example, question two is talking about the requirement to collateralize deposits with financial institutions so that in the event of a bank failure, the municipality's deposit wouldn't be lost. The minimum statutory requirement is that the market value of the collateral must be equal to 100% of deposits, but really in practice, this is generally set by policy between 102 and 105%. So there's no specific guidance on how to actually use these checklists, but you can see that there's different checkboxes for yes, no, not applicable. There's also lines below each of the requirements that can be used to document any entity-specific information or considerations relevant to the requirement. So for example, you might wanna go in and document who in your organization is responsible for the requirement or reference any relevant policies or procedures that you have internally. So when it comes to accounting requirements for governmental entities, GAAP basis financial statements are prepared in accordance with the standards promulgated by the Governmental Accounting Standards Board, or the GASB. And for those of you that are preparing GAAP financial statements, I'm sure you're aware of the fact that it can be challenging to stay on top of the GASB's activities and to identify and implement new standards applicable to your organization. So if implementing new accounting standards is a task that puts a strain on your internal resources, it's certainly an area that's a good opportunity to engage outsourced resources to possibly help in this area. Fortunately for municipalities reporting under the regulatory basis, the board of editors, who again are responsible for updating the guide annually, they go in and consider all of the recent updates to GAP made by the GASB and make a determination as to whether the changes are relevant for the regulatory basis and only those relevant changes are actually incorporated into the new guide. This guide, um, the updated guide is published annually in January and supersedes all previous versions. So the current guide includes a summary of some of those significant changes from the previous versions, but we do wanna make sure to mention that it is important to make sure that you're referring to the most current guide as you're going preparing for your audit. For 2021, the most significant changes were, were related to financial reporting for leases and some additional disclosures related to COVID-19 and the CARES Act, which all get discussed in Appendix G. Leases have been a hot topic for financial reporting over the past several years, and new lease standards have now been released by both the FASB and the GASB. GASB 87 on leases is a new GAAP accounting standard that's going to require a substantial investment of time to implement just because it requires governments to examine all of their existing contracts to see if they contain any lease components. Fortunately, however, for KMAG reporters, there is implementation guidance in the 2021 KMAG 
It says you're only required to look at existing capital leases, which are just, we wanted to point out in the future are going to be referred to as finance leases, um, in addition to any contracts entered into after the effective date. So there's not going to be a need to do the full retrospective review. So any contract determined to be a finance lease should be included with a long-term debt commitment footnote disclosures, and that's just going to be in place of the currently required capital lease disclosures. We did want to point out that the effective date of this new requirement is for fiscal years beginning after June 15, 2021. Um, so this will include our June 30, 2022 year ends and December 31st, 22 year ends as well. So the other two items that I already mentioned are relatively similar and similar. Um, and both are sample footnote disclosures related to the impact of COVID-19 and the receipt of federal funding under the CARES Act. These footnotes should be incorporated into the financial statements and tailored to the specific circumstances of your organization. So we've shared quite a bit of information about what the KMAG is and how to use it. So we just wanna make sure that everybody knows where you can find it. Um, as we've mentioned, the KSCPA is responsible for distributing the guide and it is available for purchase on their website. Um, the link here um, on your slides here can be used to access the guide. So this wraps up the first part of our presentation. So I'm going to go ahead and turn it back over to Mike for our next polling question. So moving on to the second part of this presentation, we're gonna talk about how you can prepare for your audit before your auditors arrive. And we do wanna point out that we won't be able to cover every facet of uh, preparing for your audit today, but we think these are the most important areas to consider. And so this is really meant as a guide. In every organization, you'll have slightly different steps you need to take to prepare. So in our government consulting and outsourcing practice at AGH, when we help our clients prepare for their audits, we like to use a tool like a project plan that's custom tailored to your specific organization and use this to keep track of the tasks that need to be completed and monitor progress so that we can see whether you're staying on track. To get started, we're gonna talk through these basic steps. First, we're gonna talk about internal controls and we're gonna, we're gonna do this first for a couple of reasons. And those are the, this isn't just something that you do at the end of the year, you should really be thinking about your internal controls and procedures throughout the year. And when your auditors are performing your audit, internal controls should be the first thing that they're asking you about. The second step here is to close the year in your accounting system. And third, after we make any additional adjustments, we're gonna make sure we've reconciled all of our accounts and start working on drafting the financial statements, including the footnotes. And hopefully by the time you've done all this, you'll have created most of the documents that your auditors request to perform the audit. But the fourth step would be to do sort of a completeness check and make sure you have all the requested working papers prepared and ready for your auditors. So let's start by talking about internal controls. The KMAG requires that audits be performed under generally accepted auditing standards or GAS. And one of the requirements under GAS is for auditors to perform what's called a risk-based audit. And that means that auditors are required to obtain an understanding of your organization, including its internal controls. Generally, auditors will ask that you complete some type of questionnaire or provide a template for documenting your internal controls in a narrative format. And that's a really good starting point. If you don't already have a copy of the template that your auditor uses to, to document your internal controls, I'd recommend requesting a copy so that you can review an update throughout the year. This will help you from a completeness perspective, 
making sure that you're addressing all the areas your auditors consider to be of importance, and it will also help you be ahead of the game for your audit. Internal controls aren't just a check the box activity or something that you have to do to make your auditors happy though. They're really an important mechanism to help ensure that your organization meets its objectives around operations, reporting, and compliance, and to protect your organization from the risk of fraud or error. A lot of times when people, when people think about internal controls, they immediately think about control activities, but that's really just one component of a robust system of internal controls. A good system of controls is designed based on the results of a risk assessment and updated regularly based on the results of monitoring activities. With limited resources, you wanna make sure that you're focusing your attention on the areas that pose the greatest risk to the organization's objectives. And there's a cost benefit consideration when you're implementing controls. There's a real cost associated with controls in terms of employee time, required staffing levels, technology costs, et cetera. But then there's also an efficiency component and we need to continue to go about doing business and internal controls can slow down the processing of transactions. So the purpose of a risk assessment is to help strike a balance and implement just the right types of internal controls to effectively manage risk without excessive costs in terms of dollars or time. And you'll wanna think about both entity level controls and transaction level controls. Entity level controls are really the foundation of establishing a good system of controls. Think of things like enforcing a code of conduct, hiring and training employees qualified for their positions and providing them with development opportunities, and establishing an organizational structure and lines of reporting, for example. Without a firm foundation of entity level controls, it becomes very difficult then to effectively implement transaction level controls. And transaction level controls are the procedures that are put in place to ensure that transactions are processed uniformly and to mitigate the risk of fraud or error. Michelle, I wanted to point out that in 2020, COVID resulted in changes to the ways of doing business with a move to a more remote work environment and changes in, te in technology. So in many organizations, changes had to be made very quickly just to keep things moving. And that makes this a great time to revisit internal controls to make sure that organizational risks are still being adequately addressed in this new environment. Thanks, Alicia, that's a great point. So uh, when you're thinking about transaction level controls, you wanna think about how you process transactions through your main transaction cycles. On this slide, we've listed out some of the main transaction cycles that are generally relevant for government. And we're gonna go into a bit more detail on a few of these examples. When you're thinking about risk, generally you're gonna have more inherent risk when cash is changing hands, when you're processing a high volume of transactions, or when transactions are particularly complex. To bring this to life, let's think about revenue and cash receipts as an example. That's gonna be higher risk when you're dealing with areas like utilities, municipal courts, or for counties, the collection and distribution of property taxes. This is due to a high volume of transactions, which often involve actual cash physically changing hands. And these type of activities also generally require specialized software that's either interfaced or integrated into the general ledger, resulting in complexities for recording and reconciling. So we've talked about revenue here, but these same risk factors are also applicable to other transaction cycles. Using accounts payable and expenditures as an example, let's go ahead and walk through how to go about designing and documenting internal controls. 
For internal documentation purposes, internal controls are most often documented through written policies and procedures. Best practice is to utilize procedure manuals to train new staff to ensure that transactions are processed uniformly in accordance with the organization's policies. It's also a good idea to include a last updated date on any written policies and procedures to ensure that the current version is distributed and utilized. As a general template, when you're writing policies and procedures, you wanna think through the items on this slide, authorization, initiation recording, processing, reporting, and safeguarding, and consider how each of these areas is handled. So starting with authorization, when you're thinking about AP and expenditures, you'd wanna consider how purchases and accounts payable are approved. For example, what types of purchases require a formal procurement versus what types of purchases can be made directly through AP or on a purchasing card? And who has the authority to approve a purchase order or an invoice? How is the documentation of the approval process maintained? Are there electronic workflow approvals within the accounting system or are approvals documented through manual signature? If it's a manual process, then who's responsible for maintaining the records? Michelle, I wanna point out that when organizations are going through their audits, some of the audit procedures will require the auditors to make sample selections from purchases and cash disbursements. So it's really important to make sure that the documentation that you're talking about is readily available. You're going to wanna to be able to provide purchasing files, contracts with vendors, approved purchase orders, and approved invoices to support the fact that the trans transactions were properly authorized. Exactly right, Alicia. So moving on to initiation recording, think about how do you ensure that encumbrances and accounts payable are recorded against the appropriate budget? For example, are functional managers responsible for reviewing the coding assigned to POs and invoices? An AP could be centralized or it could be decentralized. So who in your organization is responsible for receiving and entering the invoices? When you don't formalize these processes through written policies and procedures, it just opens the door for inefficiencies and errors. In practice, I've worked for a client where some departments are entering their own AP transactions while others are sending invoices to the finance department to enter. And sometimes invoices are pre-coded and approved, and sometimes the AP clerks have to do extra legwork to gather this information. By getting their procedures in writing, they were able to streamline these processes and really save everyone in the process time and frustration. Now, when it comes to processing, improper payments, which are payments that should not have been made or were made in the incorrect amount, are often a problem that can plague governments. To avoid improper payments, consider how do you avoid processing duplicate payments? Often accounting systems have the ability to recognize duplicate invoice numbers for the same vendor, so that if the same invoice is entered more than once, it will result in a warning to the end user. If your system doesn't do this automatically, you'll need to consider manual controls that can be put in place. Also consider how do you ensure that the appropriate vendor is paid for goods or services received? One of the ways we can help reduce this risk is to make sure that we protect sensitive data like the vendor master file. Michelle, I wanted to share an example here. One of the recent vendor fraud schemes impacting governments has been for a fraudster to request changes to direct deposit information on file for a legitimate vendor. Then when the next payment is processed, it goes to the fraudster rather than the actual vendor. So to avoid schemes like this, it's important to restrict access to that vendor master file and to have controls in place to verify those requested changes. 
But for example, you might require vendors to submit these requests in writing on a form that you provide that includes the vendor's tax ID number and requires an authorized signature. And you should always verify requested changes by contacting the vendor using the phone number you already have on file. Thanks, Alicia, that's a great example. So moving on to reporting, some things to think about. Um, earlier, we talked about who's providing the coding for invoices, but then on the back end, who's responsible for reviewing the budgetary reports to identify instances of improper coding? Generally, functional managers are gonna be responsible for monitoring their budgets, but then there's also some responsibility within the finance department for helping with this, since functional managers just aren't always finance-minded. And when Alicia was talking about the life cycle of an expenditure earlier in this presentation, we talked about the importance of reviewing encumbrance listings on a periodic basis. So who in your organization is responsible for reviewing encumbrance listings to verify encumbrances that can be liquidated, uh, to, to identify encumbrances that can be liquidated to free up budget authority? And then the last but not least is safeguarding. Consider how do you protect access to sensitive assets like blank check stock and signature keys? and sensitive data like the vendor master file. Generally, you wanna have as few people as possible have access to the vendor master file. And you also wanna avoid giving the same employee who processes accounts payable access to the vendor master. Um, and this is a really great example of the importance of segregation of duties. And on the next slide, Alicia's gonna talk a little bit more about segregation of duties. So segregation of duties is one of the key concepts of a strong internal control system. In any organization, duties are categorized basically into three types of functions. The first being custody of assets. Second is the authorization of transactions related to those assets. And third is the recording the transactions related to those assets. As a preventative control, no one person should handle more than one type of function. By separating the performance of these critical functions, the organization helps ensure that no single individual is in a position to both perpetrate and conceal irregularities. As a detective control, it's also a best practice to have a separate individual reconcile the accounts so that any irregularities would be detected. We also wanna point out that this isn't just relevant to AP and expenditures, but really to all transaction cycles. So if it isn't feasible to segregate these responsibilities in your organization due to limited staffing, consider mitigating controls that can be put into place. This could mean an additional supervisory review, including review of exception reports or change logs, or an additional layer of authorization for transactions over a specified dollar amount. It could also mean maybe outsourcing certain activities such as a recording or reconciliation of transactions. So let's take a closer look at segregation of duties now by walking through an example related to payroll. A lot of smaller organizations might only have one employee dedicated to payroll. And if you're processing payroll internally, having only one employee involved is really a huge risk. If something happened to that employee, would you still be able to get employees paid on time? It can also be really challenging to properly segregate responsibilities to mitigate the risk of fraud. On this slide, we've included a simple example of a payroll control matrix that allows you to visually see whether or not duties are being properly segregated. In this example, you can see that no single individual is responsible for more than one aspect of payroll processing. Now, just imagine if your payroll clerk was responsible for maintaining the employee master file, processing payroll, and distributing payroll checks. 
that one person would have the ability to set up a new employee or update an hourly rate for an existing employee, process a payroll, and distribute the checks. Hopefully you'd have some compensating controls in place. For example, maybe a supervisor is responsible for reviewing the exception reports and the pre-run payroll register before the payroll is processed. But if no one else is involved in the process, how would this type of irregularity be prevented or detected? In addition to segregation of duties, there are also a lot of complexities related to payroll, such as ensuring that benefits are properly taxed, reviewing fringe benefits for inclusion and income, and interpreting and implementing the provisions of new legislation like the Families First Coronavirus Response Act or the FFCRA. If you're in a small organization and you don't have the staff resources available to properly segregate these responsibilities and deal with the complexities around payroll, I'd really encourage you to consider outsourcing payroll as an option to enhance your internal controls. A point of focus on outsourcing is that external service providers become an extension of your existing structure to expand the capacity of your organization. Just like any other member of staff or management, outsource providers are assigned certain limited authority and responsibilities. While you can certainly lean on experts to help guide you, management's ultimately responsible for designing system internal controls and providing direction and oversight over the work done by external providers. So generally speaking, outsourced service providers should not be responsible for initiating transactions or authorizing them, but they can certainly relieve the burden of processing, recording, and reconciling transactions. So we spent a fair amount of time now talking about internal controls, but they really are a very important component of preparing for your audit. Not only are your auditors gonna need to obtain an understanding of your internal controls, they're also gonna select transactions for detail testing, and they might even test your internal controls. So to wrap up this portion of the presentation, I just wanna go over a few key concepts to consider to make sure you've adequately addressed controls. First, make sure you've considered all your main transaction cycles. Today, we talked about cash receipts, cash disbursements, and payroll, but there are likely other main transaction cycles in your organization that would need to be addressed, such as budgeting, capital assets, and long-term debt. And make sure your written policies and procedures have adequately addressed the results of your risk assessment related to main transaction cycles. That means that the control activities you put in place should be targeted to mitigate the risks you have identified to meeting your operating, reporting, and compliance objectives. And finally, we'd recommend that you go ahead and complete the relevant KMAG regulatory checklist that Alicia talked about. Going through this exercise will help you make sure that you have implemented processes and controls that will help you meet all the regulatory requirements established by state statutes. And that wraps up our discussion of internal controls, so I'm going to hand it over to Mike for our next polling question. Great, thanks Mike. So moving on from internal controls, the second step in preparing for your audit is to close the year in your accounting system. Generally, you'll close period 12 and the beginning of January, almost just like any other month end. However, at year end, it's particularly important to communicate a closing schedule throughout your organization. A closing schedule will facilitate the timely and appropriate processing of encumbrances and accounts payable. We've touched on the expenditure lifecycle a couple of times now, but we'll go into a bit more detail about considerations around those transaction cycles in the next couple of slides. And a couple of additional steps are to record transfers and accruals. Budgeted transfers are often recorded throughout the year, but they can also be recorded quarterly or annually. As part of your year-end close, you'll want to make sure that all journal entries have been booked to record budgeted transfers in the general ledger. And meanwhile, accruals are only applicable for gap basis municipalities. Some accruals will be booked in period 12, while others might be booked in a period 13, depending on when the information becomes available. 
Example of accruals include accounts receivable, accrued payroll, and accrued compensated absences. So let's get into a bit more detail on encumbrances. To comply with the budget laws in Kansas, any purchases to be made with current year budget authority must be encumbered. An encumbrance represents a commitment to make a purchase and it's generally supported by a purchase order or a contract. Depending on your purchasing policies, a formal bid, request for proposal, or informal quotes might be required for certain types and dollar amounts of purchases to ensure competitive purchasing. Because all those processes take time, you want to establish a cutoff date well in advance of year end for the final dates for RFPs or requests for bids in order to leave plenty of time for receiving responses, opening bids, evaluating proposals, making final selections, and then finally issuing purchase orders or contracts. And Michelle, from a practical perspective, it's a good idea for finance staff to review minutes of the governing body near year end to ensure that any contracts approved by the council or commission are encumbered in the appropriate period. So when the governing body approves a purchase, that would typically result in an encumbrance unless the discussion specifically states that the purchase is intended to be funded with the ensuing year's budget. In addition, it's also a good idea to do a final review of the encumbrance listings to address any old items and ensure that any lapsed or canceled encumbrances have been recorded. This will ensure that any budget authority that needs to be released has been and that old encumbrances aren't rolled forward into the next period. Thanks, Alicia. So on this slide, I've included sort of a cheat sheet for the dates relevant to recording accounts payable and encumbrances. After year end, you'll wanna make sure that staff processing accounts payable are especially attentive to making sure that payables are recorded in the appropriate period. Accounts payable should be recorded in the period in which goods or services are received or when the title to goods transfers. Unfortunately, this isn't always obvious from the invoice that the vendor sends. If the invoice includes a date of service, that's the date to use. Sometimes an invoice might include a ship date, and with a ship date, it technically depends on whether the title transfers at the time of shipping, which is referred to as FOB shipping point, or at the time of delivery, which is FOB destination. Michelle, I do want to point out that occasionally an invoice will include a range of service dates that crosses year end. In cases like this, there is some judgment involved in deciding when to record the payable. But what's most important is that you document how you came to the decision you made so that if your auditors ask about it, they can see that you thought it through and made a logical choice about how to record the transaction. Thanks, Alicia, that's a great point. Okay, so um, third-party information, I'm not gonna go into a lot of detail here, um, but sometimes you will be required to um, gather third-party information for your uh, accruals for gap basis financial statements or your footnotes and you just want to make sure that you do this early um, and if you need to engage with uh, third-party service providers make sure you do that really before year end so um, once you've made all your adjustments you're ready to move on to the third step and start drafting your financial statements i just want to remind folks that it's really management's responsibility to prepare the financial statements and although your auditors might help with this to some extent, management's ultimately taking responsibility. So it's important to understand what goes into preparing financial statements. And there are several different ways to go about doing this. Some accounting systems have the built-in capability to generate financial statements. And there are also specialized software systems that you can load your trial balance into. However, often financial statements are just built in Excel and Word files. In any case, the best practice is to utilize a trial balance 
um, to make sure that uh, the financial statements agree to the underlying accounting records. You also want to ensure that uh, your accounts are grouped into financial statement light items consistently. And often these groupings are coded into your accounting system as a chart of accounts element. For example, expenses are reported by function and often function is an element in your chart of accounts. It can take some specialized skill to develop these financial statement workbooks, but once everything's set up, it's really just a matter of importing current year data and reviewing the results. In our practice, we've helped clients develop financial statement workbooks, but we've also assisted in drafting financial statements on an ongoing basis. With limited staff resources available in local governments, there's often just not enough time available to draft financial statements internally, which can make outsourcing a good option here. And once you have your initial draft of financial statements, you wanna go through a process to review them. Start by making sure that you've reconciled all your balance sheet accounts to subsidiary ledgers. For example, you'll wanna make sure that your total EP balance is supported by your EP ledger of open vendor invoices. Next, make sure that any new funds that were added in your general ledger are properly reflected in your current financial statements. Then review financial statements to make sure that you've re resolved any cash basis or budget violations. And if you're showing a violation, consider whether there may be any encumbrances that need to be relieved or if there are any transfers that haven't yet been recorded. And finally, you can move on to updating your footnotes. Footnotes should be reviewed and updated annually. Many of the general disclosures, like your summary of significant accounting policies, won't change from year to year, but it's always best to read through the whole document to make sure everything's still accurate. For all your detailed note disclosures, you'll need to update dates and amounts for the current year, and where it's applicable, make sure that the amount that's included in the footnotes agrees to the amount presented on the face of the financial statements and schedules. Michelle, I wanted to remind folks that if you're preparing gap basis financial statements, the KMAG mandatory note disclosures that I pointed out earlier are still required to be presented, even though they might not otherwise be required by gap. An example of this is a capital projects compliance. Since capital projects are budgeted on a project basis rather than an annual basis, this footnote is used to demonstrate legal compliance. So for each capital project, the footnote should disclose the project budget and capital expenditures to date. Thanks, Alicia. Another good reminder about the resources you provided earlier is that the KMAG provides detailed descriptions of the required disclosures, as well as illustrative note disclosures in Appendix D. These are great resources when you're reviewing and updating your footnotes. If you're preparing gap basis financial statements, we would recommend that you also complete a gap disclosure checklist. The GFOA provides disclosure checklists that you can uh, use to make sure you're meeting the requirements of the Certificate of Achievement for Excellence and Financial Reporting Program. And if you're interested in working towards the GFOA Certificate Program, I'd be happy to send you the checklist to help you with this review. Just send me an email after this presentation to let me know you're interested. And this is a, a list of note disclosures that are required by the KMAG. We won't go into detail on all of these, but just wanted to provide this as a reference. The illustrative disclosures included in Appendix D of the KMAG are really very useful because they include relevant state statutes that can be referenced in your footnotes and boilerplate text that can be tailored to the specific circumstances of your organization. They also include all the required general disclosures related to CAFERS, which will be essentially identical for all municipalities participating in the state retirement plan. The general information included in these sample disclosures is updated annually by the Board of Editors, so that each municipality just needs to update their current year values from the GASB 68 report provided by CAPERS. So that now that we've talked about internal controls, closing the year in the accounting system and drafting your financial statements, the fourth step is to prepare the work papers for your audit. 
Auditors customarily prepare what's called a client assistance request or a PBC list. And PBC stands for prepared by client. The good news is if you've made it to this point, you've most likely already prepared most of the documents your auditors will need to begin your audit. But you'll wanna carefully review the PBC list and make sure that you've addressed all the items they're requesting. Earlier, I mentioned it's a good idea to use a project plan to assign certain tasks and work papers to individuals and set deadlines for completing them. These deadlines are so important to help keep you on track so that your auditors have the information they need to complete your audit and they can issue your report on time. So staying on top of that project plan will really help you identify slippage and correct it before it becomes an issue. Now, as your auditors pro progress through the audit, they will be making additional requests for supporting documentation for specific transactions. So just be prepared to pull that documentation upon request. And last but certainly not least is just don't forget to check your work. Um, best practice is always for someone other than the preparer to review each work paper that will be provided to the auditors. In addition, you'll want to take a step back and review your financial statements at a high level and look for unusual relationships between accounts. Auditors call this an analytical review. You might want to compare current year balances to prior year account balances and investigate any significant changes. You could also compare account balances that should have certain relationships to each other. For example, in GAAP basis financial statements, property tax receivable is generally equal to unavailable revenue for property taxes. And if it's not, you should be able to explain why. You'll also want to make sure that the financial statements you've prepared articulate with one another, meaning net position on your balance sheet should equal ending net position on the statement of changes. And then make sure that the financial statements agree to or reconcile to the balances recorded in your general ledger. And then check to make sure that the amounts in your footnotes agree with the amounts reported in your financial statements and schedules. And finally, we would just recommend going back and reviewing that KMAG checklist one more time um, to make sure that your financial statements are still demonstrating compliance now that you're in the final stages. And with that, I'm gonna go ahead and turn it back over to Mike for our last polling question. Thanks, Mike. So to wrap us up, I'll reiterate that every organization is a little bit different, but the steps that we went over today provide the basic framework for preparing for your audit. And to recap, those steps include reviewing your internal controls, closing the year in your accounting system, performing reconciliations and drafting financial statements, and then preparing work papers for your auditors and checking your work. If you've done these things, take a deep breath because you're ahead of the game. I don't know of anyone who's ever excited to be audited, but if you're prepared, it really doesn't have to be stressful. So as we wrap up today, Alicia and I just wanna thank you for joining us and we hope that you've enjoyed this presentation.